Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest today is producer, engineer, Joe Ciccarelli. First of all, for as long as tours have been going out, there's always been a question. Is it worth it to be the tour opener? So in other words, the opening act on a big tour. Many tours don't actually have one these days, and in other cases, you have to do a buy-in, meaning that you actually have to pay the act in order to perform. That being said, How Music Charts did a study to find out if opening on a tour really helps your career at all, and if there's any correlation with the number of streams that an opening act might have. They found it was all determined by four different things. First of all, it was the size of the venue. So obviously, if you're going to be touring stadiums and sheds, you're going to get a lot more visibility than you would in smaller clubs. So that makes a big difference. The location of the shows is also a big deal because there are some areas where you may be unknown or your style of music might not be as popular than in other locations. The number of shows is a big deal. So if you just did two or three shows with a big act, it wouldn't mean nearly as much as if you had done the whole tour with them or half a tour with them. So that's a big deal. And finally, you have to be stylistically compatible with the main act. We've all been to concerts where the opening act was so different from the headliner that they just didn't make any sense. They made no connection with the audience. It had nothing to do with whether they're good or bad. It's just that people were expecting a different type of music. If we look back, there are lots of examples of this. Uh, One of the biggest ones that I can remember is when Prince opened for the Rolling Stones on a tour, and he was booed off the stage. Just too different. So that's a big deal. So what they found was the likelihood of immediately converting listeners is pretty low. The caveat to that is, if you're on tour for a long stretch of time then you'll actually see a boost in your streaming numbers. So is this worth doing? Yes, it's worth doing just for the experience and what you're going to learn from an established artist. But any benefits in streaming is gonna take some time to realize. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. Also, I'm pleased to announce that the fifth edition of my Mixing Engineer's Handbook is now available. It's totally updated and includes new sections on mixing and immersive audio, self-mastering, new mixer interviews, and much more. Get your copy at a special discounted price at bobbyosinski.com forward slash handbook. That's bobbyosinski.com forward slash handbook. You can also find it on Amazon and Apple Books. And remember, you can learn all about the latest in music, audio and production news when you sign up for my newsletter at bobbyosinski.com. There you'll also find out about openings for my latest online classes and special events. That's bobbyosinski.com. Now, the AES show was recently held in New York City. This was a big deal because it was the first in-person show since 2019. The AES actually shared the floor with the NAB New York show as well. So there are two shows going on at once. The attendance wasn't quite what anybody expected. I think they'll tell you that they really liked the number of people that were there, but in fact, it was lower than most other AES shows in the past. 
Final attendance was about 7,000 people for the AES, which is maybe a third of what they usually get. And the NAB had 9,500. So you put those two shows together and it was still less than what they're used to getting in one AES show. There are about 100 manufacturers there, but a lot didn't show up. One of the reasons why is that New York is a super expensive show. The union especially makes it difficult and lodging expenses are really high in the city. One of the big complaints was the fact that there was a big line at registration on the first day. And even if you were pre-registered, it still took an hour to get in. And you would think after all this time, this would be the one place that they'd have it together where that wouldn't happen at all. There are many new products that came out. Uh, SSL came out with their Mbox Studio and Origin 16-channel console. Avid came out with its Carbon 8-channel mic pre. Universal and Bach Audio showed four new condenser microphones. There are a few new API modules. And Sony came out with the C80 microphone. So that sounds like a pretty good list of new products. The fact of the matter is, just about everybody knew about these from being online even before the show, so there were really no new surprises. So when you look at this, you think, well, are trade shows doomed? It's not about the new gear anymore because you really hear about it way before the trade show happens. A lot of it has to do with meeting people there, but that can be done online too. Then there's industry events, and of course, that isn't easily replicated online, so that's one positive. And when it comes down to it, I think this is probably more useful for newcomers to the business than for longtime pros. But still, it's nice to see some old friends. And when it comes down to it, that's the best reason to go to a trade show. My guest this week is Joe Ciccarelli who's a 10-time Grammy-winning producer-engineer-mixer, whose credits include Beck, U2, The White Stripes, Strokes, Killers, Elton John, Morrissey, Jason Mraz, among many, many others. Other projects have included music supervision of films such as Suicide Kings and Men with Guns, the TV series Cracker, and Robert Altman's The Gun. Joe is also the studio designer for the -the state-of-the-art Royal Tone Recording Studios, which is now known as Sphere in Burbank, California and he's served as an A&R consultant for several major and independent labels. Most recently, Leapwing has released his signature plug-in that captures Joe's special sounds on the most common mix elements. During the interview, we spoke about working as a music supervisor, the impetus for his signature plug-in, the analog gear that the plug-in is based on, producing it in different genres, and much more. I spoke with Joe via Zoom from a studio at Sunset Sound in Hollywood. You're based out of Sunset Sound these days, right? Well, that's your old haunt. Yeah, it, it has been for the last uh, 10, 12 years, something like that. Yeah, you know, I, I came here, Greg Wells and I did a project together like in 2005 or something or seven, I can't remember what it was. And we loved the place so much that um, we ended up coming back here for projects. And then I started coming back here for uh, other projects on my own and, you know, ended up doing so many things here like um jason mraz young the giant my morning jacket um just just so many different lines morissette morrissey so many things over the years this has really been um my my home indeed (laughs) are you mixing there as well yeah yeah so i've got my little space here Uh, i don't know how much you can see of it but um 
you know, I've got, uh, I kind of overlooked the parking lot. I don't know if you know Sunset. You know, when you you drive in the parking lot there, the studio is, the main studio building is to the left. But straight ahead, there's another couple of houses in there. And there's a few producers in here that have rooms uh, on the lot here. So it's nice. It's a little community here. And it's kind of cool. Ah, okay. Yeah. I understand. So then when you need to track, you just go down the studio. Yeah, so basically, like all, all my outboard gear, a lot of my outboard gear is all in Studio One, because Studio One was really my hang for years, but it just got too expensive. Budgets couldn't afford it. No one was willing to pay, you know, $1,500 a day to go in and do a vocal. Um, it wasn't going to happen anymore. So um, uh, I'll go in there for, you know, a week or two, cut my tracks, then come over here, over to mix for whatever it takes to finish the album yeah but see you saw what was happening with budgets and you rolled with it you found a way to make it work i don't know i mean you you got to it's just sort of like just just the way records are made now i mean the good thing is that there's more opportunities there's more music being made so you know you kind of have to do four times the amount of work because um you know, you're in your little space, you're probably not with an assistant or whatever it is. And, you know, you're you're basically doing the job of two to four people um, on your own. And yeah, so I, I come in here and I'm doing vocals, keyboards, guitars that I'm mixing. And, um, you know, I mean, it, it's it's nice having a space that's yours and, you know, good or bad, you understand the acoustics. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, um, but uh, yeah, it, it's good. It's good. I saw something. Oh, I guess it was on your website that you were a music supervisor for film and TV. I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. No, I've done that over the years. I haven't done it in a while, but I've, I've done a bunch of films over the years. In fact, I had a company um, with, uh, I don't know if you know, Aaron Jacobus and Steve mm-hmm. Cross. We had a company for a while doing uh, music supervision. And, um, you know, that that was fun. The problem is that now there's so many people in that game that it just became so competitive that it wasn't fun to do it. Like everything, like, uh, you know, people approached, somebody approached me the other day about doing an Atmos mix and they were like, we have $500 a song. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> like, uh, no, <laughs> I'm not going to do that. Have you done any Atmos? No, I, I have really haven't. Uh, I've dabbled in it a tiny bit, but look, I, I love moving forward. I love new formats. I, I, I think that, you know, the gaming world has certainly shown us that there's much more to be had with spatial audio. And I think everybody has got to embrace that and move forward in a way, um, whether or not, I, I guess I just have, some objection to how some of the record companies have gone about doing this, you know, where it's like, let's just mix a glut of stuff. Let's not get in touch with the original producers or artists or, uh, I don't know, that hits me the wrong way. No, it's not worth my time. Not at all. And, you know, especially in my room is tiny and I couldn't properly do it here. If I, had a whole speaker set up, I'd still have to go and take the project over to a proper room and check it out and make sure that, it, that it's sounding great there. 
So, you know, by the time you're done, you're basically broke and you've worked two weeks on something and no, I, I won't do it. One of the things that I've noticed, and I've been to a lot of playbacks now of rather famous albums that we all know that don't seem to work in Atmos. I mean, EDM works great, yeah. but you get something like The Who and it gets spread out and you go, yeah, but now there's no impact like, like yeah. the stereo. No, it's very true. You know, you work so hard on a mix to glue everything together and make it all move together and have this this life. And then you pull it all apart and then you have to figure out a way to get that same feeling, but all spread out. It's tough. Yeah. You know, like you say, like the energy isn't always the same. Well, let's get to your plug-in. So Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. What was the impetus for that then? What basically made you decide to want to do that? Yeah. Well, like I said earlier, um, when the folks at Leapwing talked to me about this, I, I was super excited to be in that company because I, I really love all the plugins that they make. I use the center one and the stage one and all the time. And um and plus they have their signature line with Al Schmidt and Al was, you know, just the world to me, just the best. And um to be a part of that is quite quite an honor. But more so I, I really thought about um people getting started and um how it's really tough when you get started. I, I mean, I remember the first sessions, you know, I, I did as an engineer, you, you know, what you would do is copy who's, what, what other engineers' sessions you saw. And, you know, but you never realized that the reason he set it up that way or used that gear was specifically for the type of music and the emotional intention that he had for that piece of music and it's not about you know copying the setups but it's about really understanding the intent and trying to figure out you know what you do for something that's a heavy rock record would be very different for what you do for for a jazz record and um and you know always making presets is a very very difficult thing but the thing that's happened to be in the last few years, you know, over the years, I've, I've done presets for UA and a number of companies, which, you know, I love to help them out. And, you know, you, you make presets and you think like, you know, this is all source dependent. So you really can't get something that is going to work 100%. But the thing that shocked me is the amount of people that have come to me and said, oh, man, I use your presets all the time. They're really great. I love them for vocal or bass or whatever it is. And I'm like, really? You do? <laughs> like, I'm quite shocked. So I thought, okay, so there's some legitimacy here. People are actually getting something out of this. And like I was saying earlier, I think that when you first start out, you know, at some point, you know, you're like, well, it's a kick drum, but where do I go? And, you know, how do I how do I build it? And how do I make room for the bass? And how do I make it work together with the bass? And all those sort of things. So I wanted to give everybody like a platform that they could start with. And I think we did a good job and, and kudos to Robin and everybody at Leapwing. They really found um, a way to make the presets such that they 
really do what they're supposed to do, but also there's a large amount of flexibility there that you can really get in and be somewhat granular and really work on the, the sounds yourself. But you have a starting point that's pretty impactful. It's a good working tool where, you know, if you're starting a mix and you've got a kick drum and you're not sure exactly where to go with it, there's options in there, or if it's a bass guitar or whatever. I think at the very least, it's a starting point where you can go, okay, yeah, it's starting to have some size and punch and it's sitting in the right place in the record now, but I need to tailor it a little bit for my song. So there's a little bit of flexibility there. What I noticed was it's fairly complex because you have complex signal paths that you like to use with lots of gear, but yet it doesn't come across as that complex unless you really look into it and you go, oh, yeah, but there's this, this, and this, and then it goes here. And But on the surface, it's not like that. Good. Well, that's, that's really good to hear because it, it is indeed complex. And, and, you know, especially when it comes to drums, I use a lot of parallels. And that's all built in behind the scenes in the plug-in. So if you actually were to to break it down, you'd be like, oh my God, he's going to several compressors and a couple of different EQs and you know it's all getting blended together. But yet at the same time, there's um, enough flexibility there that you can tweak things, but hopefully it's not too overwhelming in terms of the parameters that you can adjust, that you don't get lost in it, that you can really get started with the sounds and you know there for a number of the sounds there's a graphic eq there and that's a real easy thing to manipulate and you know graphics are indeed graphic they're visual and i think for most people you get a good picture of where you want to go with the sound how long did it take to develop you know it it, it actually took a while uh but i will say the one great thing uh about leapwing is that once they committed to it man, they dove in and, you know, they worked hard for six, nine months getting this uh, to to bring to market now. Um, you know, a lot of these companies, they're like four years out. Um, there's, there's other things I've had in development that um, people are like, yeah, you can, how, how's early 24? <laughs> <laughs> really? <laughs> My idea might be old school by that time, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't want to go there. Well, considering it's all based on analog gear that you use, right? Pretty much, pretty much. Yeah, we took like a lot of my personal gear as well as the gear here at Sunset Sound, used that, modeled that, basically brought up different sessions and then in making the, the presets, I would basically run, you know, a number of dis different sessions, everything from things that I had recorded to random projects that clients sent me to mix where things weren't as processed as, as I might do. Because, you know, I grew up in the, as you did in the 24-track analog days, where basically you got your sounds on the tracking date and it really had to sound like a record you know, when, when the producer walked in the room that day with all the band there, it, it had a sound like it was on the radio, you know? Yeah. So you were trying to make a finished product right there at the day of tracking. So I really learned to put all my EQ compression, delays, etc., on right there on the tracking date. So when, you know, musicians walked in after cutting a track, 
it, it sounded, you know, 80% of the way to a finished record. So, yeah, so behind the scenes in the plugin, there is all that gear that I would use, whether it were Pultex or Fairchilds or API EQs or um, whatever that's all there behind the scenes. Um, my, my favorite thing about the plugin is that, um, you know, um, we we did it over here at Sunset Sound on the old Domidio console. And um, I won't say it's exactly the Domidio console that was used, but um, because they did tweak it further. But the interesting thing, as you know, about most analog consoles is they really react differently the way you drive them. And, you know, if you hit them hard, it's one sound. If you hit them cold, it's a cleaner, more open sound, less sort of compressed. And so the guys at Leapwing were able to kind of model the line input of that console and capture what that line input level does to the sound of the signal chain. Um, and then they also modified it to with a bunch of different it's hard to, to explain, but they modified it in a way that there is definitely uh, a character knob. You know, it's sort of my favorite knob in the plugin is the drive knob because, you know, an EQ, you know what an EQ does, compressor does what it's supposed to do, unless you really drive it differently hard. Um, but the drive seems to react very differently to different instruments at different levels. And I love that. I found that it's almost like having yet another type of EQ to choose from because just the way you kind of push the plug in. And I, I tend now to, um, you know, being all in the box, I, I tend to um, sometimes really saturate things digitally, really distort them and give them a character. Um, especially with rock music where you want things aggressive, digital distortion has its own flavor and it can be really pretty intense. So sometimes I'll deliberately digitally distort things and then bring the levels down to where they're manageable, but getting that extra crunch and uh, attack edge um, sometimes gives things a lot of personality. So uh, I'm not afraid of distorting things or saturating things. Um, and you can do that in the plugin as well. So um, there, there's really, you know, I think you can take it as far as uh, you'd like to take it, but know that behind the scenes, there might be 10 different devices that are really working as if I were sitting at the console with four different parallels on drums or two different ones on bass, or in the case of uh, vocals, sometimes it's multiple, multiple compressors and EQs. So, um, you know, you're really, you got a lot to work there. It's really, it's like having, you know, six or eight plugins in a chain in one instance. That being said, there's so much music these days that is made up of loops made up of samples. So, for instance, you'd get a drum loop where, you know, it'd be stereo and the whole drum loop would be there. I always get asked about this. So, this is the way I work. What do I do? Are there presets for that? Uh, for actually loops specifically? No, right? The basic initial um, 
plug-in is going to come with drums, bass, guitar, piano, vocal, um, just the, the sort of basics, if you will, rhythm section. Um, what they're planning to do is every month or every three months release a, diff a different set of plugins that would be more instruments, um, different types of music, um, just more things to choose from. I, I think that uh, having the presets to choose from is great, but the thing we were afraid of was initially overwhelming people that if they had a dozen kick drum plugins, they might get lost just in the presets, let alone, you know, wanting to put other plugins in the chain. So we sort of thought we'd streamline, streamline it in the first um, issue of the plugin. And then as things go along, there'll be more presets. In fact, what we're trying to do, and probably Robin will kill me by telling you this, but what I really want to do is have my friends do presets on top of my presets. In other words, to take my presets and tweak them to their liking, it, whether it's for the style of music they do or just their own personal tastes. So um, we're hoping that what we can do in further um, issues of the plugin is offer the Dave Pensado version, the Nico Bolas version, or whatever it might be, yeah. um, where somebody can go in and go, okay, well, I like what he's doing here with the bass, but you know, for me, I think it's got to be a little brighter to cut through the track. Or, you know, when I do kind of R&B music, I want it to be a little more scooped out and that that kind of thing. So um, I, I'm hoping that what you see is in the future, there'll be multiple packages that you'll get for the plugin where you'll have um, various styles of music and various other engineers and producers contributing to it. Um, yeah, I kind of, I want to call it reset my preset. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I love it. What are the reverbs based on? Ah, good question. A number of things. Classic EMT plate, uh, a live chamber here at sunset. Although, once again, things are indeed tweaked a little bit. Uh, there's also um, AMS reverb in there as well. And, you know, they're my settings on all this sort of stuff. They have pre-delays and um, um, sometimes even feedback and really, really kind of tweak to the way I might do it in a session. So you really do have, you know, a number of, you know, what, what might take you six plugins on an instrument is kind of all there in one. So when you're mixing and you're in your room there, I take it you're mostly in the box. Pretty much. I have a analog stereo bus chain uh, that I use. So I have a Burl summing network and a Burl um, A to D. Um, so basically uh, everything goes through my analog summing and uh, then out through Curve Bender and Shadow Hills and SSL, whatever it might be for the, the material. And but all my balancing, all my EQ compression, etc., is all plugins. And occasionally, I'll use hardware inserts for a reverb, something like that. Uh, but uh, just because of the recallability, um, it's all in the box. I mean, every everything 
these days, every project people want to tweak and tweak and tweak. And, you know, the, the days when you and I started, it was sort of like, you know, if you were mixing an album and it was 10 songs, you were in the studio for 10 days, you were done and that's it. But now, you know, a mix on an album can take three to six months because people are constantly, you know, trying to revise this and tweak this and, you know, the A&R guy wants this, the manager wants this, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. Besides revisions though, how long does it take you on a mix now before you get to revision stage? You know, it takes me at least a couple of days. I, I, I'm, I'm slow. Um, you know, if I'm setting it all up myself, you know, it's a number of hours just to get, get it set up in the, in a form that, you know, the labeling is right. And then, you know, I'll, I'll dig into it for a while and I might get bored or tired or feel like uh, I'm kind of getting too myopic and need a little break and um, then I'll come back to it. But it's usually, you know, a day and a half to two days before I send it out to the artist. And then from there, it's whatever tweaks they want to make. And hopefully it's not too many revisions. Usually it's a couple. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, really minimum an album is taking me 20 days, you know, uh, so I'm really, I'm, I'm pretty much, you know, I'm mixing an album. It's really a month of my time when, when it's done. By the time you you send it out, get all the files printed, et cetera, send it out. And it's just, just me because I'm, I'm picky and slow and just in my own space and, you know, want to revisit things. And, you know, then I'll sometimes feel like, well, you know what, now that I got a flow going on, I should go back to the first tune and see if I can make the first tune fit a little better with these others because you kind of refine their direction and overall sound as you go along. Yeah, when we talked about loops before. Are you getting any kind of music like that that's loop-based? Not that much uh, stuff. I mean, I've, I've done some electronic things and recently just did something with Little, uh, Little Dragon. It was all electronic. But um, I, in terms of like, you know, sort of dance stuff that's loops, um, you mean like loops as in the avalanches, like, you know, where they've taken something off of vinyl and turned it into the drum track? Yeah. No, not, not that much. I mean, that's kind of fun. I love doing that that stuff. Um, but I but I haven't done it. Seemed like late '90s, early 2000s. That was a a thing, you know. But not too much now, you know. Usually, it's some elements are programmed or sampled. I mean, I'm always putting samples in with my drums. Um, you know, people want that consistency of tone and they want the impact and you know we're used to midi drums and you know midi midi sounds are basically like compressed sounds and um i think everybody wants that kind of tone to their mix where the drums sit there and every beat is constant and big and powerful so um i'm always kind of layering things with samples yeah, everything has changed. I mean, back when bands were tracking in the studio, there was changes in intensity that you got from the band dynamics. And now it's one dynamic and you change it by just adding multiple parts or taking them away. So it's completely right. different than it used to be. Oh, very, very true. You Definitely. I mean, you know, a lot of the music that I produce is, is still a large element live players. But, 
but you're right. It's a subtractive thing as opposed to a dynamic that comes from a human that, that, you know, I even find that part of my mixing process, I'm actually in a sense, layering my mix, getting my mixed dynamics by adding additional compressors as I go along, not necessarily on the, the stereo bus, but, uh, like I might have a drum sound that works for the verse. And then at the chorus, I'll add another compressor and, you know, make the drum sound fatter for the choruses. If the guy were hitting harder or the kick and snare, at least were dug into more, whatever it is. Um, so yeah, I, I kind of feel like you're right. The, the, the process is almost an electronic additive or subtractive process that it, it's never anybody plays quieter. Yeah. It's kind of either on and off dynamics, you know? And it's the same with tempo. The tempo is so, so steady. I do what makes a song a hit for my subscribers. So I take, you know, a song might be whatever is hit hot today, or it might be an old song. And there was a couple that I came across that were big hits. One was Goodbye Stranger from Supertramp way back when. And when you listen to it, the tempo starts at like 120 and it ends at 129. And it's not because the players were out of control. It no, was because that was the intention. That was the intention. And when yeah. it picks up to 129 at the end, the excitement went way up. And it's like, wow, this is why this, is, this feels so good. Exactly. I mean, God, listen to any Dylan song, yeah. you know, listen to anything from that era. Yeah, things got more intense, you know, in the choruses and opened up and got spacious in the verse. And yeah, I, I wouldn't say that's a thing of the past, but I think it's less important, uh, less a part of most music now, certainly pop music, you know, yeah. uh, pop music, hip hop music is all so programmed and all about consistent beats and intensity and power and being, you know, all there loud at every moment. When you're producing, you actually go across genres quite a lot. Is that hard for you? No, it's actually great. It's a great, really great challenge. It keeps me kind of uh, excited. You know, it's a whole new ball game. I mean, next week I'm doing something that's very sort of um, rock, but in a very 90s uh, sort of way um, where, I don't know, just recently I did something that was much more retro and uh, blues uh, and R&B flavored almost. Uh, I don't want to say Amy Winehouse, but, you know, it had a retro kind of element to it. Um, so it, that's the challenge to me is kind of, you know, wearing, uh, different suits and, and kind of diving into that world for three months or whatever it takes you on the project. And then, you know, the next project is something different and, and, um, you, you really get to, uh, dive into a world where, you know, it's all about heavy high gain guitars, where the last album you were using a Fender champ or whatever it was so uh yeah that's that's pretty fun but that being said does it take you any time to kind of get into the new genre oh uh, yeah uh, it definitely it's nothing uh that you can kind of switch on and off it it uh, really does it takes a little time to to sort of put that suit of clothes on 
and understand what you're living in and it, it being true to that, you know. Uh, but the, the good thing is that sometimes the, all those um, influences from other things, in other words, uh, you know, the, the hard rock project that you just lived for the last three months, and then your next project is some folk singer, you know, I think you then go, well, this feels timid and small and I gotta toughen this up. I gotta put some life in it. So I almost think in a way you sort of suddenly cross-pollinize uh, things and 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 really make for something more interesting because you bring all those influences in. And I, I, for my ear, the best records, the best artists are the ones that sort of borrow from a lot of different genres, a lot of different styles and find a way to make this melting pot and make it their own unique thing. You know? yeah, uh, yeah. I think that's part of the magic of it. When you're tracking, when you're producing, you're not doing the engineering yourself, right? You, you bring somebody in. Uh, sometimes I do most of the time. And a lot of it's because of budgeting. Um, I'll do it myself. But, um, you know, it really depends on the project. There have been times where, for instance, I've done a, a number of jazz albums and I might feel like oh, I might not be the right guy for this. You know, my approach might be a little heavy handed. So I, I want to get somebody to work with who's a more traditional kind of uh, engineer and understands the sounds for the music where I might come in and just tweak it a little too much. So it's been fun for me to 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 work with people and um, you know get a little outside perspective on things, you know. Yeah, yeah. When you're tracking, are you always using the same gear? Mm -mm. I mean, you know, as much as I'll work in the same room here at Sunset, and I often work at other studios, be it Blackboard in Nashville or I don't know Electric Lady or whatever, I almost deliberately try to change things up every project, whether it's different drum mics, different guitar mics. Certainly, uh, I'm looking for uh, different sounds in my head. I'm, I'm kind of, you know, one project might want a slicker, brighter sound. Next project might want something that's heavier on the low end and darker overall. So I might be using more ribbon mics for that and less microphones for that where you know the harder rock thing i'll do next week i'll probably use more microphones on the drums and i'll probably use brighter microphones you know typically i might use a just a mono 47 or mono c37a as a drum overhead for something that's more groove oriented but for a heavy rock thing, I'll probably have a pair of overheads that are uh, brighter, more hi-fi, more detailed. And then I might have, a, I don't know, coals or something uh, as well to capture a bit of a kind of compressed drum tone. So, you know, I'll change up my microphones, change up how I treat the room mics. Um, definitely, um, you know, different compressors will get used. Yeah, I, I mean, I would say every project, at least 20% of the the setup is, is different. I like to hear that. Yeah. 
No, you know, we all have our go-to things, you know, our compressors we like or our mics we like or, you know, the favorite part of the room for the drums and things like that. So there's there's things that are um, consistent, but um, I, I, I will uh, try things a lot um, um, with room mics. You know, sometimes it's it might be a pair of coals in the middle of the room. Other times it's 87s at the back end of the room. Most of the time there's some stereo ribbon in front of the drum kit or maybe even uh, for, for heavier stuff, something close to the floor um, to get a little bit more kind of air in the low end. Um, so yeah, it just really depends on the music and kind of what I'm, I'm hearing for it. Okay, last question, Joe. Yeah. What's the one thing that people don't know about what you do that you wish they did? Uh, <laughs> I don't know if I wish they would know about it. <laughs> it's because it's it's the amount of time that I'll put in before and after the workday. In other words, before I even start the project, I'll really do a lot of research. I don't know, perhaps listening to the artist's last few albums or listening to demos and making notes. I try not to listen to demos too much because I don't want to get tied into them. I want to, you know, have some spontaneity there and some freshness and objectivity. So I, I don't want to listen to people's demos too much because, you know, as you just get married to parts and it might be the parts are really bad, but you've just heard them about a thousand times and they become the song. So I try not to do too much of that, but I'm really always planning things out and thinking and the end of the day i'm thinking okay what went right what went wrong what do i need to fix later where can this go and how much further can i take this record or have i taken it too far and do i have to dial it back so it's not like you go in the studio for eight ten hours and that's the end of it you know when i dive into a project it becomes you know seven days a week your entire life you wake up in the middle of the night going i know how to fix this problem i got it you can find out more about joe at joechiccarelli.com that's joe chiccarelli c-h-i-c-c-a-r-e-l-l-i.com you can also find out about his signature plugin at leapwing.com thanks for listening and being in my inner circle remember if you have any questions or comments you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com Remember that you can learn all about the latest in music, audio, and production news when you sign up for my newsletter at bobbyosinski.com. There you'll also find out about openings for my latest online classes and special events. That's bobbyosinski.com. To listen to the episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyoinnercircle.com, or you can find it in Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, Tune in Radio, Radio Public, and Podbean. At BobbyOsinski.com and BobbyOwnerCircle.com, you'll also find a sign-up form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. Bye.